Recent cyber attacks on everyone from healthcare systems to airports to energy systems have proven that cybersecurity is essential no matter which business you're in. Now, most experts say companies should spend between 10 to 15% of their annual IT budget on cyber defense. The reality is few companies are even doing that. But I think we can all agree that spending money to prevent an attack is a lot cheaper than the cost of remediating a successful attack. So how do you get organizational buy-in for cybersecurity? And how do you scale once you have it? Hi, how are you? I'm Gary Cohen with Industrial Cybersecurity Pulse. Welcome back to the Industrial Cybersecurity Pulse podcast with my co-host, Tyler Wall. It feels like we haven't had a podcast episode in a while, but it's the same amount of time as normal. So It, it does feel like it. I spent the last two weeks uh, in New Zealand. So for me, it feels like months ago that we recorded one of those. Like it was a whole different world when we recorded the last one. So it does feel like a long time. Uh, today, we're going to be joined again by Matt Leipnick. Uh, he's a lead industrial cybersecurity specialist for Nexus Controls, a Baker Hughes business. He's going to talk to us about getting buy-in for cybersecurity. Uh, really good conversation with Matt and a, and uh, to, not to put too fine a point on it, a very important thing. I mean, you can have the 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 best cybersecurity team out there working for you, but if you don't have a budget, if you're not given resources, if the C-suite and the board don't believe in the need for cybersecurity or the need for a cybersecurity budget, you are going to struggle. So being able to speak the language of business to the people on the business side, I think is a really important thing. Absolutely. And before we get into it, of course, I got to do my question. And as you just said, and none of you know until now, he was out of the country and abroad in the wondrous world of New Zealand. Um, what was your favorite part of your trip in New Zealand? If you had to pick one thing. I had to pick one thing. I'll say my favorite, now we only did the um, the North Island, didn't do the South Island, which is where all the mountains are. Not that there aren't mountains in the North, but uh, favorite city was Wellington. I like Wellington a lot. Uh, everybody complained about the weather because it's windy there all the time. Uh, I spent years of my childhood in the San Francisco area. Don't mind wind. Don't mind it being. Plus, I was coming from Chicago. So people are like, oh, weather here is terrible. It's 65 degrees. And I was like, it's 20 where I came from. 65 is great. So I, I didn't have any complaints there. Um, favorite part of it. I'm going to go back to uh, there's I'll give you two things. I'll do a short one and a longer one. The short one was we did a lot of geeking out over the various Lord of the Rings stuff there. I can't say I'm a super fan. I haven't seen the movies in years, but going to uh, Hobbiton, which is the set uh, that they filmed the Shire, the Hobbit land in was pretty amazing. I didn't realize that it was the the entire area was still there. They had built the set for the Lord of the Rings. Uh, torn it down after that and then rebuilt the whole thing in the same area for the Hobbit movies. And then after that went, let's keep it up. And and it's been a tourist attraction since. So that was cool. And then um, while in New Zealand, we figured uh, why not take advantage of, of New Zealand's number one export, bungee jumping. So we did bungee jumping, which I had done a bunch in college and hadn't done since then. And uh, that was fun. It's a, it's a unique kind of fun, but a uh, kind of fun that I enjoy. So uh, getting up on the bridge again after like 20 years and forcing yourself to jump off is always kind of interesting. I was, I was <laughs> telling Tyler before we got on, the, uh, the, the person I went with was really nervous to, to bungee jump. Never done it before. 
Um, not that I wasn't nervous, but she was very nervous. And the, the people inside were like, talk to the jump master. Jump master is great. She'll help you through it all. Uh, and then we talked to the jump master and at some point asked the jump master how many times she had bungee jumped and she had bungee jumped three times. So it doesn't take a lot to become a jump master, apparently, because three is not a lot. <laughs> right. Clearly. Wow. Yeah. But that was probably at the, I mean, I like the whole country. It is green and beautiful and rolling hills and as many cows and sheep as you'd ever want to see in your life. Um, yeah, it's, it's funny though, because I flew out two days ago, three days ago, I'm still getting my time back. Uh, and it had, apparently I was in Auckland and apparently Auckland is like flooded today. There's been torrential rains. <clears throat> I got out at a good time. Yeah. And I mean, what a bummer it would have been to have to be stuck in New Zealand a little longer too. I'm sure you would have been heartbroken. Definitely. I would have been, you would have had to do the podcast by yourself. I think you would have managed and uh, somehow I would have soldiered on with the extra days in New Zealand, but yeah. <laughs> yep. I, I came home to, uh, to the snow. It's basically been, I went from the land of summer to it snowing every day since I've been home. I will say I am probably the only person in Chicago right now with a sunburn. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so uh, on, on the cybersecurity note, so Tyler and I this week, that was a rough transition, but I'm going to go with it, uh, attended a, um, a panel event uh, from Dragos, which is really interesting. The Sprint to Secure Critical Infrastructure was what it was called. They brought in a number of panelists from different uh, industrial cybersecurity fields, one from a drilling company, one from Georgia Pacific, one from Southern Company, uh, one who currently works for Dragos, but was the former CISO of Rockwell Automation, uh, to talk about some issues in securing critical infrastructure and uh, was a really interesting talk. Uh, headlined, it said, at least kicked off by Robert Lee, the CEO and co-founder of Dragos. Uh, and he had some things that I thought I think were really interesting. He was talking about the what he called the the phases of of the industrial cybersecurity or ICS security environment, basically saying that it started there have been multiple eras in industrial security operations, beginning with the first era he targeted, he he said was people getting targeted on the IT side, whether that was petrochemical, manufacturing, et cetera. But they were basically targeted on the IT side. People were coming in. Uh, typical cyber attack, looking at your IT operations, possibly for espionage, uh, weren't doing any serious operational damage. We're, we're just hacking into systems. Um, according to Lee, around 2008 or 2009, they started getting into the industrial networks, realizing that they could cross breach from IT into OT, which led to industrial espionage, um, you know, they they realized that there was a lot of value in targeting industrial systems and targeting operational technology, whether that was geopolitical value, uh, whether that was, you know, as he mentioned, sometimes your IP, your intellectual property is the manufacturing environment itself. So you can steal trade secrets that way. Uh, but he called this the era of ICS curiosity. So it was state actors and other motivated actors hacking into systems, trying to figure out what they could do with operational systems, figuring out what the value is. Just let's get into the ICS and see what we can do. This was like Havex and Dragonfly, Black Energy 2 and 3. Um, these were not necessarily attacks, although Stuxnet was in this era, was an attack. But 
it was mostly espionage. Phase three, according to him, uh, he called the ICS disruption phase, which he said lasted from 2015 to 2021. This was a number of attacks, uh, very focused attacks, pretty human intensive on the attack side. A lot of people, a lot of manpower required to do them. Um, and they were site or sub-industry specific. So some of these were destructive in nature. The idea was to cause human damage, uh, to damage systems, to create havoc. Uh, but they were, so they were disruptive. They could be disruptive. They were basically based on the kind of information that was stolen in the previous era, but they weren't scalable and they weren't cross industry. So they were very specific attacks. If you were attacking the en energy industry, it was a motivated planned attack on that industry, which meant from a defensive perspective, people had time to prepare. So if an energy system was hit, you didn't have to, if you were working in whatever, if you were working in transportation, you didn't have to worry that these attackers were going to immediately turn to transportation because there was no indication that they'd ever prepared for a transportation attack or that the malware that was being used would even be useful. So that meant they had time to prepare. You didn't really have to worry too much about if you saw an attack happen in Ukraine, that it was going to immediately be leveraged here in the U.S. or vice versa. And then he said there's a new era that began in 2022 last year, which is what you know began with the malware that they call Pipe Dream, uh, which they found and analyzed Dragos before, uh, before it was actually employed out in the world. Uh, but these are attacks on critical infrastructure that are, are pretty scary. They're going after electrical systems, natural gas, critical infrastructure. But this is the first time, according to Lee, that the, they saw the capability that these sorts of attacks were scalable, they were reusable, and they were cross-industry, which is the big change that went from that third era to the fourth era, which means you know they were able to take advantage of this more homogenous infrastructure, that, that people are using common software stacks and things like that. So it did allow them to go, we attacked a petrochemical here, and we could turn right around and attack a transportation hub because they're using a lot of the same things. The same malware will work. Uh, so that, you know, and that's all part of what we talk about all the time. Industry 4.0, digital transformation, more things going online, more common systems being used, more third parties being used. Uh, but from a defensive perspective, this obviously means you don't have much time to respond because these attacks can be scaled. They can be reused. Um so, you know, if you've been taking the steps to secure your systems for the last decade or two, you're you're probably going to be somewhat OK against these sorts of attacks. But if you weren't paying attention and you have not been securing your systems uh, to use the, the phrase that he used, the divide just became astronomical. You are now years behind and your systems are incredibly vulnerable to being hit. And if they're hit. Uh, it's going to happen fast and it's going to be it's going to be trouble. So uh, according to him, the time is sort of running out to get your systems in check, which I, I thought all that was interesting. All those different different eras that he talked about. And you you, you kind of know them from from looking at the the threat landscape out there over the last few decades. But uh, but I hadn't I hadn't heard it put into those words before. Yeah, and my kind of takeaways segue excellently, excellently uh, from that. And so like. One of the other speakers, his name is Curly Henry, fantastic name, by the way. Uh, his, he had a couple things that are good for these businesses, companies, plants to focus on. 
Um, and these are including, uh, so just kind of knowing your normal and identifying a baseline of where to begin in terms of your cyber structure. Uh, and the key is just to find a starting po point and then focusing on deviations from there. Another thing is just getting an idea on how much visibility you have on your OT systems. And it's critical to know what you have. Uh, it, of course, you can't protect what you can't see. And um, it's just key to play. Nope, English. Uh, it's key um, to just identify that within the starting point, because um, as just kind of what I already said, it's just part of establishing that normalcy and um, base level. Uh, and he was also talking about the importance of segmentation and isolation where possible. Uh, I know in the past, and in past articles, we've talked about air gapping, um, and it is excellent if you have it in place with other things, and this is what he's talking about a little bit, is with that segmentation and micro-segmentation as it breaks down kind of further, and it just kind of uh, reduces the blast radius, as he puts it, of if this uh, network gets hit, then it's not connected to these other ones it can spread to. And uh, just minimizes the impact of bad things happening. And this next part he kind of talked about, it feels very Mr. Mr. Miyagi, Master Ugwe a little bit, but don't be afraid to fail. Fail fast, try some things, and just to understand what works and what doesn't. Uh, and then just try it in different environments to ensure there's no impact if it something does happen that's bad. And of course, as we all kind of know, manufacturing is just behind because of these OT legacy systems. And it's just becoming a very targeted sector and a growing attack vector as well, because there's just such a large attack surface surface with that. I, I it's not that I didn't appreciate your karate kid reference, but the the kung fu panda reference really got me there. So well <laughs> yeah. done. Um yeah, it, 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 curly was was had a lot of really interesting things. They all did, but had a lot of interesting things to say. Two things on what you just said. Number one, I love the phrase blast radius. I had, again, that was like, it, it very much put, gave me a nice mental picture of like, let's reduce the amount of damage that can be done. Absolutely. Um, yeah. But that's uh, that idea of like, fail fast, fail small, you talked about. And, you know, I, I think that's, people are petrified to fail in cybersecurity because obviously, that's your job to protect your systems. You fail. It could cost your company millions of dollars. It could cost you your job, your reputation, your company, its reputation. But his point was everybody's going to fail. There's a, there's a lot going on out there. So the goal is prepare yourself to fail fast, fail small. Don't let it take down the whole company. You may make some mistakes. You may try some things, but make sure when you try those things that the, the blast radius is going to be small, that the mistakes you make are going to be easily remediable. Is that a word? Mm -hmm. Easily remedied. Let's go with that instead. Um, so I thought that was that was a really interesting thing. The other thing he talked about, again, I'm going to point out, beautiful segue on my part, because uh, this was also um, the, the same person, was talking about what we're going to talk about today with Matt Liebnick, which is getting buy-in from the C-suite, the board, getting a budget for your cybersecurity operations. And one of the things he said, and this was in the panel discussion afterward, which again, was a great panel discussion. Um, some really interesting people. Uh, it was, we mentioned Curly Henry. He's a VP deputy CISO of the Southern Company. There's also uh, Shola Anju. He's the CISO of Noble Drilling. 
uh, Robert Cox, manager of operations technology at Georgia Pacific, and then Dawn Capelli, who is the director of OT Cert at Dragos, but she was also the former CISO of Rockwell. So a lot of good people in there um, coming at it from, from different perspectives. Uh, but Carly talked about getting that buy-in and it's, again, you can have everything in place, but if you don't have a budget and you don't have buy-in from your company, you're going to be in trouble. So his advice was, and Matt will talk about some of the same stuff. You've got to learn the language of business. You know, we have in this industry, I'm throwing Tyler and I into the cybersecurity industry, even though we're in the media, uh, <laughs> you know, we have tech and cyberspeak, but that doesn't always translate to executives. doesn't always translate to the C-suite. You know, we want to use those words, but they don't always resonate with the executives. You know, a small population, of the, uh, a small percentage of the population really understands cybersecurity. So we've got to be able to speak the language of business to help them along. Uh, Shola Andrew also piggybacked on that of how important it is to have that buy-in and support. Security has to be a key part of your business. And I think every business understands that. Uh, we were having a conversation earlier today, Tyler and I with some other people uh, at our company because we do content for engineering. So we're dealing with, we're working with big manufacturing companies. And every one of these companies now really does understand that cybersecurity has to be a part of their business. It has to be baked in because whether you are Georgia Pacific or Rockwell Automation or Schneider Electric, if this, if you're, if you aren't keying on cybersecurity and you aren't giving your clients the confidence that you've got cybersecurity in order, then that's gonna, that's gonna be a hurt, uh, a harm to your business. So. Everyone needs to understand those cyber risks and needs. And that's, I think, why buy-in becomes so important all the way through. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And before we kind of get into the interview, of course, a great way to kind of get the conversation going is identifying those points, uh, those pain points. And it could be in the form of tabletop exercises because that involves everybody top to bottom. So getting in there and looking at all those different vulnerabilities and all of that, when you're going through these different exercises, is a great way to just get that conversation rolling. And you can read more about that on and listen to it in a previous uh, previous podcast. <laughs> exactly. We, yeah, we have one on tabletop exercise with Dino Busalaki of Velta Technology. Plug for previous podcasts. One other thing he said, talking about vulnerabilities, he being Robert Lee, the CEO of Dragos. Uh, they had put out a report earlier this year that said something along the lines of, I'm paraphrasing here, that you only really need to worry about 5% of the vulnerabilities that are out there. Uh, and somebody had asked a question like, can you clarify what you mean by that? Um, which was a really interesting point because there is, as a previous guest has called it, an avalanche of vulnerabilities out there. I mean, you check uh, the CISA site or the known exploited vulnerabilities catalog. There are so many of them out there and if you get yourself into this hamster wheel of, I, we got we to gotta stop all of them. We got to prepare for all of them and don't do that risk assessment of which are the ones that are important to your business, which are the ones that can impact you mm -hmm. and triage those, then you're wasting a lot of time and effort. And his point was only 5% of the vulnerabilities that are out there have ever been proven to be able to impact ICS systems, uh, have ever been actionable. And so, you know, a huge percentage of the vulnerabilities out there doesn't mean you shouldn't patch them. You should. Uh, but his point was 
that a lot of the focus tends to go on to patching and fixing all of these things. But you've really got to worry about the ones that are important to your business that can impact you and do that risk assessment first so you aren't wasting time and, and precious resources, which often there aren't a lot of for protecting the OT side, the operation side of uh, your business. Uh, really focus on the ones that are important to you and that can impact you. Mm, exactly. Precisely. So let's uh, let's bring in our guest here. As I mentioned before, joining us again today is Matt Leipnick, a uh, good friend of the site here, did a couple of videos with us, articles you can find on the site. He is the lead industrial cybersecurity specialist for Nexus Controls, a Baker Hughes business. He's got over 20 years of experience in cybersecurity and is responsible for developing customer operational technology cybersecurity solutions across Europe, the UK, and RCIS. Uh, Matt, thanks so much for being back with us again today, and let's let's talk about getting cybersecurity buy-in. Thanks, Gary. Looking forward to it. So uh, let's start by by talking about getting that buy-in. It, it can be hard to get the C-suite and the higher-ups to buy into the need for increased cybersecurity, and especially cybersecurity budget. I think everyone would admit that cybersecurity is important, but it is a conditional cost. So how can you get buy-in from top-level executives and start promoting the importance of cyber defense throughout an organization? I think one of the key things is we often, when we're talking about operational technology environments where it's a very technical area so that you know the infrastructure there's a lot of technical terms the process is quite technical it's an engineering discipline and if you think about it business management side of the organization is not necessarily as well versed or aligned to the engineering side of things as, as perhaps the sort of commercial side of things so i think one of the key things is is, is positioning a language so trying to uh, turn, you know, using detailed technical terms and abbreviations and things like that, and and trying to flip that into more like what what is the direction of the business, understanding the goals of the business, and then trying to tie the kind of the technical side of the business back to the business goals. So, sort of, for example, a lot of the time we'll talk these days about digital transformation, for example. So we could leverage digital transformation because you know the the board or the senior management will generally understand that. And then we can tie the, the kind of technical elements to how they align to digital transformation. You know, we've seen, you know, in the pandemic, we've seen a lot of people move to remote working, for example. Ultimately, that's underpinned by security. Security has enabled that to happen, but that's the kind of how. But what the business sees is the flexibility of being able to continue, you know, keeping the lights on, serving customers while everyone's at home. So that's probably one of the key areas and then and then it's really about sort of language and um thinking about ways we can better explain the situation it, it, taking the technical out of action just as thinking more sort of sim, you know common language or layman's terms and then trying to align that so that everyone's um working towards the same mission right the worst thing you can do is go to the board and say oh you know there's three thousand threats more than there were last month and um SQL injections really, really bad for us. And, and they're just going to go, well, well 3,000 threats. What does that mean to me? Right. So I think throwing statistics with them is, is not the way to start. Statistics and data underpins your argument. But really, you're sort of saying, look, if we do these things, we can achieve so much more as an organization. And, and that's how we start to work towards that kind of getting the buy in, I suppose. Right, basically not treating the C-suite like it's an IT manager or somebody who who needs to understand the details of the threats, but but making sure that you guys are talking the same language. It makes perfect sense. 
um, in an organization, especially larger organizations where there might be a CISO and a CIO and a CTO, et cetera, how do you kind of manage the conflict between those or at least define the roles and make sure all those groups are in alignment to try to create a strong cyber defense for a company? Um, it's a really probably one of the hardest areas, I'd probably say, because what you'll find is as an organization's evolved over time. So, you know, responsibilities that are under the CTO should probably be under the CIO and they aren't and, and vice versa. And everyone has their, 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 their patch that kind of uh, gets built out as, a, as an organization grows over time. So one of the things we talk about on a, on a, on a technical level is right at the start, if you, if you look at something like the, um, uh, the NIST cyber security framework is identify. So I would, I would look at that more from a, a business point of view is like, what are the roles and responsibilities and who should really have them? Who does do what and, and who, who doesn't do what? Because that is often where there's the tension comes from the, the, I suppose the communication between the silos, if you like, of the, those um those roles and their direct reports um and that actually lays the groundwork for things like incident response because knowing who's responsible for what when st bad stuff happens is key to uh, managing an incident and, and reducing that kind of incident downtime so although it starts from uh i would say more like a human resources point of view of of trying to understand who's who's responsible and and prioritizing those responsibilities in the right place. So depending on who's got the resources and, and those sorts of things, and maybe even realigning the resources, but, um, and then leveraging that because actually it's groundwork for things that you'll do later when you kind of dive deeper into a, you know, a proper security strategy and, and things like response, uh, response plans and response strategy and things like that. So def defining those roles, is it an oversimplification to say that it really comes down to, to communication, that these people do need to be talking to each other to make sure that they know what their, for lack of a better term, their fiefdom is, and, yeah. uh, and you're not overstepping or complicating things for the others? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting point, because we talk a lot about like IT, OT convergence. And what we're actually really seeing quite often is it's not really one or the other coming together, although you do get that. And it depends on the market that the, the company is in, size of the organization. So I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but what we're, we're finding is it's, it's not IT and OT, it's just, it's just one of those, right? So this idea of collaboration and, um, you know, taking, uh, trying to avoid this idea of silos coming together, where really they, they, they're not us and them, there are just one team, and working out how you can better position the organization from that side of view. Now that might be taking some OT guys and rotating them into the IT security team for a bit or, or taking the IT guys and having them spend some time in plant operations and production and trying to, you know, so they're not seen as two different teams. They're, you know, they're multi-discipline teams that you're kind of putting together to, just to solve a single problem, right? So everyone's trying to get to the same place. They're all talking to each other, establishing, um, you know, common communication channels. I mean, yeah, you're right. A lot of, a lot of our problems, if you like, are caused by poor communication. I mean, and that's not just in, you know, in business and industrial environments. I mean, that's in life generally as well, right? So, yeah, it is, a, it is a very important factor, and perhaps one of the first places we should probably start to look when we're trying to um, uh, iron our, our outlook out and, and formulate these kind of uh, ways to solve these things. Sure. Uh, um, so let's assume you actually do get the buy-in that you need to, to create a, a strong cyber defense. 
how can you properly scale cybersecurity to get through those initial growing pains? Well, um, so it's a big question. I, I, yeah, it is a big question. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, the, we can probably cover this in multiple episodes to be fair, mm -hmm. but um, I think you, 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 as I, I've talked about identifying and leveraging something like the NIST cybersecurity framework, but I, I try to simplify it into sort of three, uh, three or four key areas, depending on how you view remote access. But um, there's the, the sort of hygiene piece of um, feeding and watering and nurturing, you know, the, the minimum basics you've got that you should be doing in your sleep, to be fair, although people have not done them historically and are starting to wake up to that. Then you get this middle ground I call hybrid, where you're, you're, you're introducing either introducing a visibility tool into your environment to, again, get a better event, awareness of what's actually happening and what's talking to what and in, you know, in, in a real-time view of what's going on in your environment, there's some growing pains associated associated with that because what then happens is you get a load of alerts and you don't normally have the people that understand those alerts and 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 have the time or resources or knowledge to necessarily handle them, and you go through that growing pain and then and then you come out the other side and then that's where you can start to look at moving from a kind of reactive um, approach to cybersecurity to a more sort of proactive sort of holistic view. Now, to manage the resources through that is quite tricky. So again, that's where you have things like the IT and the OT team being one team, um, relying on um, additional resources that um, either from a, a you know a, a third-party supplier or a services part of you. Um, so um, you know, for example, we provide industrial uh, managed services and um, industrial security operations center. That can either sit across your existing, you know, so leveraging your IT security operations center and, and, and upskilling and training and bringing resources into that to then cover OT. And, and then um, over time, you, you need a, a plan really of how you're going to bring that resource up. And that's going to be different things to what you normally have today. So things like um, more sort of Windows admin type skills, virtualization experience, uh, programming skills for things like scripting and, and and those sorts of things which aren't naturally skills that you might have um from what we see which is typically mm, a lot of organizations are taking their existing plant operations and engineers and trying to give them the additional responsibility of security as well and and you know and there's you know uh, ot security is a is a is a very fast market at the moment there's not a great deal of of people in the space to go and hire and that's difficult as well so you've got to think about how you how you manage that gap until you either can hire or can upskill your existing um, people processes of technology um how you're going to augment that while you sort of grow and learn so some organizations just will outsource their stuff and that will be it some will start on an outsource basis and then as they mature and grow over time they start to take that stuff back in house and then they can obviously scale and, and make that a bit more efficient from there. But the, the, the key is flexibility and, um, and, and building off of what you've got without trying to throw it all out and start again. Cause that's, you know, you can leverage your existing culture, especially in, in industrial because we're coming from that health and safety point of view and, and cyber is affected and a nice extension of health and safety culture. So it's perhaps easier sometimes to get the OT side of the organization more cyber ready than try and get the IT cyber or part of the organization more OT ready. 
so you've offered us a couple of different sort of solutions of how this process happens. You're running the company, you're running the world. In a perfect world, what does the designer structure look like that, that offers the most bang for your buck? Um, another big I, question. I only ask you huge yeah, global questions ask, that are totally unanswerable. Questions. So yeah, so for me, it's, it's, it's um, for me, I always, we're supposed to start at identify, but I always argue start at recover because there's a time, uh, there's a time period before you, you know, we know it's like in large organizations, you, you have to get budget, you have to get people assigned. It might be six months before you actually start to make some headway on something. And in those six months, you can still get compromised, right? So I, I like to say really good backups that you test. Um, the hygiene aspects that I talked about, and then really it's taking a visibility tool that, that starts to tell you what you have. And then you want to um, bring on something like a security um, event incident management tool on top of that. That then gives you context. So now you're saying this bad thing's happened. How does it apply to our environment? What do we go and do first? In what order and in what priority do we start to take action? That's a really nice place to be. And then like the Nirvana, the Nirvana would be is that you can start to automate some of that stuff and, and the, the volume stuff can, can be automated. Ultimately, I think success really is your inability where you, you can handle anything that's thrown at you and you're not bursting the seams when it comes to not having enough people or not having enough time or you, you, you're effectively prepared, even though you don't know what the day will unfold and give you, but whatever happens, you, you know, if that crops up, we know what to go and do next. If this crops up, we know that we need to go and do that. Uh, and that's success for me. The cliche is, oh, you, you know, you, know you, you don't have an attack and you, you never have a problem, but uh, that's unrealistic and, and uh, you know, it's never gonna happen. So you just need to be, for me, prepared for anything, but you've, you've pre-planned that and you've thought it through. Um, I think a lot of people still get caught out because they've not done that. You know, even tabletop exercise is really simple to do, but you know, what's gonna, what could happen to us over the next 12 months? Right, so what happens if that happens? Whose responsibility is it? I've had people around the table where it was like, well, I thought you would look after that. It's like, no, no, that's that's your responsibility. And it would have fallen down a gap. And obviously, gaps cost time and time extends the outage, which extends the cost of the outage and, and so on and so forth. So for me, it's about preparedness. Sure. It's, uh, it's always that thing where people say, well, if I was on the Titanic, I would have done but it's hard to know what you will do when the systems break down and there's chaos around you. So having that plan in place makes a, makes a lot of sense. It is really random. Obviously on the Titanic, one of the things they would never have potentially modeled would have been driving, you know, running into an iceberg. And obviously we've got incidents of late where we, you know, we wouldn't have expect drones to be flown into a, you know, into a plant and, and to cause damage. But, and, then, and then there's the less field threats. So you've got the, the, the normalized threats where you, can come up with them and then you start have to sort of war gaming the kind of outliers but it's, it's a worthwhile activity absolutely so i'll close this out by going back to to buy-in um we talked earlier about most companies probably recognize at this point that there is a need for cybersecurity and a cybersecurity budget are we now finally past the point where companies have to continue justifying the need for it and can just get down to the business of solving it? Or do you think we're still kind of in that early phase where the justification part is, is necessary? It's, it's difficult because I think a lot of it's tied to the size and maturity of the organization. 
I think there's a lot less justification in a in a international oil company, for example, than there is in a you know a, a small you know single state power generation company or something like that, for example. But um, I think we with Colonial especially, everyone's finally woken up and realised they've got to do something about it. I think the justification piece is 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 still a big a big hurdle. But as I said at the start, you know, linking it back to things that we want to do in the business that maybe we can accelerate remote access, uh, centralizing control rooms, um, uh, predictive, uh, predictive maintenance, analytics, those sorts of things. They all enable, cyber enables all those things to happen. So even though you can't see it. So to me, it's this idea, positioning cyber as a business enabler, I, I think is a one way to tackle that justification battle. But yeah, I still see it time and time again. We're not quite moved past it. But you know, every day, every new attack, we're that we chip away at that little by little, and, and things are a lot better than, than say five years ago. You know, where we weren't even having conversations about it. So, right, hey, we're 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 getting there. Well, Matt, thanks so yep. much for uh, for that. It's all great information, and you really helped us tackle some uh, some very large questions. So, thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. There you go, another great conversation with Matt Leipnick about cybersecurity buy-in, getting all of that. Great conversation, greater person. Man, what a good one. Uh, I mean, he had a lot of great things to say, uh, but I know one of the things that I really liked that he was talking about is make sure you're being flexible and building off of what you already have within your uh, cyber landscape in your business instead of just starting over because that that can just take more time than it needs to be. And there you you have enough resources built up, you can definitely just continue building from there. And also, I like what he was talking about too, with leveraging your existing culture and just building it up from there. Again, with that, he's he's talking a bit, of course, as you heard in the interview, uh, deals a bit with ITOT convergence a little bit and building that cyber culture between the two rather than individually as pillars. While that is important, so is the coming together as... ITOT convergence pushes forward. Uh, and he also talked about, that I liked at least, was how cyber is just a nice extension of health and safety culture. That's getting into the ideas of thinking of it more as digital safety versus cybersecurity and just an extension of general well-being rather than this isolated thing. And yeah, it was just an overall great conversation. Yeah, the, the ITOT divide that you were just talking about in a previous interview, in a previous podcast, he talked about it like it was marriage counseling. Like, you got to get these two sides to talk to each other because they don't want to talk to each other. Um, you know, as far as buy-in goes, you know, Leapnik said in the interview, which is good, is that we're not having to work as hard anymore to get cybersecurity buy-in, to convince businesses of the need for cybersecurity uh, the good news and the bad news of attacks like solar winds and colonial, these huge attacks that everybody saw and took note of and went, oh, oh good God, we might be in trouble. Mm -hmm. uh, those have at least awakened people or wakened people to the idea that um, that cybersecurity is necessary. So that helps with that buy in. But it's also it's the same thing uh, um, Curly Henry talked about in the uh the Drago seminar that we went to is 
is um, you've got to position it as a business enabler. It's got to be part of when you're speaking to the C-suite, to the executive level, to the board, you've got to be able to position it as a business enabler to say, you know, this will help us be reliable. It will help us continue to make our products, whatever that product happens to be. It will help our business keep running. So using those sorts of words, um, whatever that language is, it doesn't have to be threat vectors and ransomware, and it can be predictive maintenance and analytics and things that speak to the business side. You've got to be able to do that. But but as he said, and I think is an important point, is we're in a much better place than we were five or 10 years ago when people weren't even talking about cybersecurity, at least now in boardrooms and not just in cybersecurity companies, but in major manufacturers, places that make candy or widgets or distribute oil or gas, they are now talking about cybersecurity if they weren't before. So that's a, a positive step from, from the, uh, the negative world event of these attacks happening. Definitely. And I know it can seem like like they should just care already. Like it should just be something that they know. But you have to remember that it isn't their job to know this. It's their job, I guess, with the exception of like a CISO or a CIO. Uh, it is their job to represent the more business and actual tangible dollar signs of of whatever the business or company might be. So and, and let's be honest, like you're not you're not making money from cybersecurity. Cybersecurity no. is a defense mechanism for something that may never happen. Right. Exactly. Probably will happen. But so, you know, I, look, if you ask me, I'll, I'll be honest, I'd rather spend the money on making my product than doing this thing that I might not need. But yeah. man, if you get hit, you're going to need it. And it's the damage that can happen in the tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars shutting down your operation, shutting down a manufacturing line, reputational damage to the company. It is just the cost of doing business now. Yeah, exactly. That's, yeah. So just, yeah, speaking their language is just crucial to being able to get some sort of cybersecurity budget at all, just to show that it matters and that if you want to survive a cyber tech, which may or may not happen, um, at least it's there as a fail safe and more than anything. Exactly. And so as always, for more great content just like this, you can visit us at now our new domain, icspulse.com. That is icspulse.com. Much shorter, much easier to say, much easier to type into your computer. It's great or phone. Mind uh, you, you can still go to industrialcybersecuritypulse.com if you like typing. But uh, but we now have the shorter domain domain yes. name too. Exactly, exactly. And of course, if you want to reach out to us, if you want to be interviewed, if you have questions, comments, concerns, trivia, jokes, you can reach out to us on Twitter at ICS underscore Pulse, or you can email us for me at twaltwal at cfemedia.com. Or you can get me, Gary Cohen, at G-C-O-H-E-N or G Cohen at cfemedia.com. Happy to talk about anything. Obviously, I'm happy to talk now about hobbits and bungee jumping and all sorts of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, make sure you tune, tune in every other week on Tuesday for the next episode of the podcast. Thanks so much for being with us again. And uh, yeah, we'll see you next time. Stay safe out there.